electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome to Closing Bell. I'm Mike Santoli in for Scott Wapner here at Post 9 at the New York Stock Exchange. This make-or-break hour begins with stocks treading gingerly into a new week. Traders anxiously watching that 10-year Treasury yield tick above 4.5% at the dollar index, also making a new 10-month high. Big tech and energy trying to prop up the S&P 500 as small caps attempt a tentative bounce from deeply oversold levels. Coming up, Elizabeth Burton of Goldman Sachs Asset Management with the results of a new survey and how she's telling clients to position their portfolios. But first, our talk of the tape. Is this still just a standard September setback in the indexes or do the breakdowns below the surface and the route in the bond market mean the bulls are losing the benefit of the doubt? Here to discuss that is Brian Belsky, chief investment strategist at BMO Capital Markets. Brian, good to talk to you. How are you doing? Thanks so much for having us. Just a normal September in our book. Well, this is it, right? So by all appearances, <laughs> if you, if you uh, I, I guess, sort of pan out, that's what it looks like, right? 6% off the highs. It started right on cue as August got underway. Uh, so we needed something like this, maybe predicted it, maybe uh, should have expected it if not. On the other hand, if I look at cyclical stocks starting to struggle, the general market unable to really look beyond what's happening in the bond market, equal-weighted S&P maybe breaking down a a little bit too. Uh, that doesn't cause you to rethink it? No, it doesn't, uh, Mike. You know, you and I go back a long ways, back to the 90s. And unfortunately, the majority of institutional investors have maybe been in their seat 10 or 15 years, so they've never really seen this. We really think this is all part of kind of returning back to normalization. If you go back to 1950, when you have a return in the markets of over 15% through August, you typically have a very strong end of the year around 4%. I think 4% is the magic number. The 4% is the average uh, fourth quarter return since 1950, 4% is the average return when you see a, a negative September. So I think that's going to end up what's going to happen. I think as I go around and talk to clients, Mike, uh, institutional clients are underperforming. Uh, long only missed the January, February move, initial move in the markets. Hedge funds are dramatically underperforming because they've been so negative most of the year. And obviously, they love this action in September. So I think earnings have come in and they've been uh, pretty solid. And I think, the, I think third quarter earnings are going to be pretty good as well. So I think we have a pretty decent chance at a liftoff. And history shows uh, that it's pretty normal to have a liftoff, especially considering how strong the first eight months of the year were. Right. No, it, everything does line up. If, you, if you're going to be kind of combing through the archives and saying what other situations match up to the market experience of this year, it's generally pretty encouraging. I guess the only question is, you know, in July, we had a pretty solid consensus that a soft economic landing was very likely. And people seem to be positioned roughly accordingly. Now, uh, it's a little bit of doubt uh, creeping in or maybe a lot of doubt creeping in. Do you think the economy can handle what seven and a half percent 30 year mortgage rates and you know oil prices at ninety dollars a barrel can throw at it 
I think so, because first off on oil, it's, it's uh, demand outstripping supply uh, for the first time in a long time. And I think coming off of what we had a very strong summer in terms of people traveling, uh, and it's really a supply issue right now trying to match up with demand. Now, we'll see what happens a year from now. When you kind of look out and plan how when you're building, you know, building out on, on the corporate side, I think that energy cost is going to be going down next year. That's number one. In terms of the, of the economy, look at how some of these consumer stocks have done, actually held in there quite nicely. And I think heading into, heading into the, to the holiday shopping season, I think there's going to be some very strong uh, kind of uh, have or have nots. It's going to be really the the online side is going to do really well. High end is going to do really well. And kind of the lower end, kind of the consumer staple-ish type consumer stocks. And that would include Costco and Walmart. But on the online side, we think Amazon is primed, uh, not to, for, to catch the pun there, to, to really rebound. Remember, Amazon had a tougher year last year. So we think Amazon's actually quite well positioned heading into the holiday. Does that go uh, for other stocks in the Amazon category? By that, I mean, you know, the $500 billion and up uh, kind of consensus favorites among the growth companies, the Magnificent Seven, whatever you want to call it. Because as much as they've come in off their highs, they haven't really surrendered any relative performance to the average stock since the top of the S&P 500 in late July. They really haven't, and that's a wonderful point. So you kind of go back to this term normal. We've seen, quote, unquote, normal corrections in these stocks, and you think it's quite healthy. These, what we would like to call them, the consumer staple-ish type tech, meaning Apple, Microsoft, Google, Netflix. We've had really healthy kind of pullbacks and opportunity to, I think, add to positions, kind of core positions over the next three to five years. In terms of the high multiple names, even some of the, the forward multiples on, on NVIDIA and, and like are looking more attractive. We've said all along that you want to kind of be more growth at a reasonable price and map up a high multiple name with a lower multiple name, especially in the semiconductor space. And I think that's what's really going to help uh, portfolio positions and more of this kind of stock picking uh, going forward. Yeah, it yeah, seems like not uh, not all boats uh, getting lifted, even if uh, if things turn out to be not so scary in the economy. Uh, let's bring in Bryn Talkington of Requisite Capital Management and Emily Rowland of John Hancock Investment Management. Bryn, of course, a CNBC contributor as well. Uh, welcome to you both. And Bryn, uh, I guess the big question is, uh, as we set it up before, if this is a normal pullback, when would it become something a little bit more scary, whether it's because of what's going on with bonds or just the market action itself. It's a normal pullback, and I agree exactly what Brian said. This is setting up. We, we invest based on probabilities. I think when you study history, that's what you have to do. So, so far, this is like a regular healthy pullback. I think from J July, peaks were about, you know, five and a half, five point eight percent off. But really now you still got to start looking at technicals. And so I think technicals start to take a, a more front seat because the fundamentals, really, we're not going to get new fundamentals until earnings come out and be able to re-rate or re-qualify what these valuations should be. And so, you know, for the, for the NASDAQ to me, which is important to look at, because as the 2 and 10 continue to go higher, especially the 10-year, those previous ceilings of 5 and 4 and a quarter are now the floor. Well, the derivative to that, Mike, is now the NASDAQ is under pressure. And we all know pretty much the, the tech stocks in aggregate are about 40% of the S&P. So you want to see that 43.50 on the S&P. I know intraday we can move around, but you want to see us close above that. You know, but on the NASDAQ, we're below the 50-day, we're below the 100-day, 
And so if you look at the QQQs, I think the 200-day is at 328, which is, that's like a bungee jump from here. So I think mm-hmm. you need to see a catalyst for that to happen. But right now, I think as a, as a trader, if I were trading, I would want to be patient. I wouldn't be putting on new trades right now just because the S&P from that July high continues to make lower highs and lower lows. And so you want to see some settling out, I think, of rates to start getting a base before you could put on new positions um, as, as a trade over the next three or four months. Yeah. And, and Emily, I mean, you know, whether in fact uh, the market does kind of hold these levels and, and whether it's just kind of going through a normal turbulent period, it seems as if uh, investors are trying to struggle with exactly what the economic impact is going to be of the Fed's current stance uh, and really how strong the, uh, the recovery has been right now. Has any, did anything change for you, Emily, yet last week with the way the Fed positioned its outlook for uh, rates staying high for longer? Yeah, not really. I mean, we saw Chair Powell come out with a hawkish hold and sort of taking the cuts off the table and leaving the door open to more hikes. I don't know that it much matters from here whether we'll see one more hike or not. I think the damage has been done. We've just seen the Federal Reserve over the last 18 months raise interest rates to the highest extent in the shortest amount of time that we've seen in modern history. And we all know that there's a lagged impact of Fed tightening. We haven't yet see that, seen that bite the economy yet um, in the form of the unemployment rate going on and more cracks in the labor market. But what we see happening is that the cost of capital goes up and up and up every single day. It's amazing to watch the 10-year Treasury yield today back up 10 basis points on basically no news whatsoever. We're also at the same time seeing inflationary pressures receding and revenue growth coming off record lows. So what we expect to see happen from here is that companies are going to need to start defending their margins. And we'll learn more about this in earnings season. And of course, the biggest cost most companies have is labor. So we eventually think that the lagged impact of Fed tightening will tip the economy into recession will cause those cracks in the labor market to form, but we're just not there yet. I do think that rates rising to this extent are certainly spooking equity markets uh, as of late. Yeah, and it's interesting. We, we should listen to what Austin Goolsby, Chicago Fed president, said this morning uh, on Squawk Box about the, the, the current stance or his current thought about how long rates might have to stay up here. I've been trying to emphasize that pretty soon in here, the, key, the question is going to stop being, well, how much more are they going to raise? And it's going to transform into how long do we need to hold rates at this kind of restricted level to feel convinced that we're back on this path to 2%. And that's healthy. So, Brian, um, that's clearly the mode that they're in. And you know, maybe the Fed's done. Maybe there's a little more to do. Uh, do you think the market can make its peace with that? Because they seem not in any hurry to try and pivot away from higher for longer, even if the economy sputters. I do. I actually do think that because, again, Brent talked about history. Uh, what's the 10-year average uh, in terms of the, the rate over the last 50 years? 5%. Again, we've reared an entire generation of investors that think that stocks can only go up if, if rates go down. Actually, no. And the risk return, if you take a look at standard deviations, uh, and the risk return ratio is actually better when rates are higher. That means the economy is still pretty good. So I think this re- recession camp, the waiting for Godot recession, is more of a primrose path 
path than anything. And I'm in, we're in the camp of uh, the rolling recessions already happened in terms of all these other industries and sectors. And now you, again, you, we're going to go back into picking asset classes and sectors. And we think small caps, are, small mid caps are going to be a big part of that. Because if you take a look at the public small mid cap areas, mm -hmm. these companies are in amazing condition with respect to balance sheets, cash flow, and earnings. And we think that's really the lost gem for the next five years. You know, Bryn, it's an interesting thought because you can look at this market and say, ah, it's been kind of uneven. It's been maybe dominated to the upside by the mega caps. And then if people start to get concerned about the economy, you look and say, well, most stocks haven't really participated. They look cheaper than, than the indexes. Does that mean it's opportunity or the smaller stocks giving you implicitly a macro warning? I think the smaller stocks are following their playbook. I think to Brian's point about small caps, I think you would want to look at individual names, but playing like small cap or small cap value, I would still want to avoid because what sector, if you look at like cap weighted, is most susceptible to rates? Well, it's smaller companies. And so those have, you know, balance sheets that actually are much more susceptible to cost of funding and as well as in addition to how strong or how weak the economy is. And I just feel that you know, I, we still want to be very defensive. We like materials, energy, which is not defensive at all, by the way. Um, we <laughs> like technology. But I think that as, as, an, as a sector and just as, an, as, as a whole, I just still struggle that we've had 13 years of zero rates. So while Brian may be right that the average 10 years is 5%, we've had no time in history, not even after the Depression, where you had zero rates for 13 years and we had QT, you know, QE 1 through 5, and then now that, that, that QT is coming off. We don't know how that, that, that mosaic will actually rear itself. And I do think when people go to transact, anyone, whether it's a company or individual, that when you go transact at these higher rates, it just costs so much more. And so I think we're going to continue to have the economy weaken. Yeah. Maybe nothing breaks. I think something ultimately will break, though, Mike, from having rates this high, because I'm not so, I'm not so sure that SVB was the last one to have a poorly managed balance sheet. And to me, those are the biggest risks. But you want to stay invested because I can't, you, you can't invest for an exogenous event, but I definitely yeah. think they're out there, out there in the market that people should be aware of. Yeah, as people are, uh, are currently celebrating the 25th anniversary of the long-term capital management meltdown, we uh, are reminded <laughs> you can't usually predict these things too detailed. Emily, though, um, you know, one of the points some of the economic optimists have been making is not just, well, look, rates are higher because the economy seems like it's better, but also the defensive sectors of this market have not really outperformed. And so, so the equity market itself is not necessarily hunkering down for bad times. What would you say to that? Yeah, this does actually feel like a little bit of a 2022 flashback right now. You know, we're starting to see defensive versus cyclical trade perking up a little bit, def uh, defensive showing some signs of life here after lagging materially uh, so far this year. And you're seeing some of the same macro factors influence markets. You've got a stronger dollar, you've got higher rates. We actually see a big shift coming in consumer behavior as we think about 21% credit card rates. We have housing affordability, uh, the lowest or the least it's been in U.S. history, auto loans at record highs. We think consumers are going to start to make trade-offs. They're going to do the math. And they might not necessarily buy the stuff they want, but they're still going to do the things that they need. So areas like infrastructure, investments, utilities, we think should catch a bit. We look at areas like healthcare that offer defense. They offer quality, some value there. They're trading at a 10% discount to the market. They've got a 20% 
return on equity. So we do think that there could be some legs here to mm -hmm. this relative outperformance of more defensive equities. And to Bryn's point, you want to be invested in this market. You don't want to get overly defensive. We're not suggesting going to cash, but we don't think this is the right time to be reaching for risk. All right. Yeah. Healthcare, uh, one of the few areas that are, uh, are green today. Uh, Brian, Bryn, Emily, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, let's get to our question of the day. We want to know, where do you see opportunity now? Stocks, bonds, commodities, or cash? Head to at CNBC Closing Bell on X to vote. We will share the results later this hour. Meantime, we're following the latest developments in the UAW strike. This is President Biden is set to join the picket line tomorrow. Phil LeBeau here with an update. Hey, Phil. Uh, Mike, I think we're locked into a quiet period of sorts. And I say that because I think that we're not going to have anything until President Biden visits the picketers tomorrow. I don't think the UAW wants to step on his uh, appearance before he is there. And maybe we don't have anything tomorrow. Maybe Wednesday or Thursday is really when we see the developments happening next. So with that said, here's the state of things in terms of the UAW strike and where they are. There were active strikes, uh, active talks, I should say, very active talks between the UAW and Ford over the weekend. There's three big hurdles right now, not just with Ford, but GM and Stellantis as well. Total wage hike, cutting and ending wage tiers. That's where people are brought in at a lower tier, and then they have to work a number of years before they make the top wage. And then there are cost of living adjustments. Remember, those were stripped out back in 2008, 2009. Now the UAW would like those brought back in. In terms of the total number of workers who are on strike right now, it's just 12% of the UAW. But this all comes down to how competitive can the big three be versus their foreign counterparts versus Tesla. And as you look at this map here, there's 20 states where we now have UAW strikes going on, a total of what, 40 uh, overall locations? Just three of them are final assembly plants. So as you take a look at um, what we see and what we're expecting, you've got picketers who will be meeting with President Biden tomorrow. We're not sure of the exact time or how much of a dog and pony show this will be. Does he quietly meet with them, then turn to a pool camera? Is it going to be where he has a bunch of cameras there? Nobody's entirely sure at this point, but he is going to make it clear that he wants the UAW members to get more money and to stand for their right for collective bargaining. So with that in mind, take a look at shares of GM, Ford and Stellantis. And keep in mind that for all of these automakers, the good news is that there is some progress being made. But whether or not that means we see no more strikes called by the UAW, it's a little too early to say that. Mike. All right, Phil, uh, in that in-between period, waiting for some sense of urgency, perhaps, to uh, emerge. Uh, Phil LeBeau, yeah. we are just getting started here. Up next, navigating the volatility. Goldman Sachs' Elizabeth Burton is breaking down some fresh data, and she'll tell us where she's seeing opportunity into year-end. We're live from the New York Stock Exchange. You're watching Closing Bell on CNBC. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Picture this. It's Saturday morning and you're on your John Deere compact tractor. You're effortlessly breaking ground on your new landscaping project. Next, you're moving piles of rocks just by moving a lever. And now, you're enjoying the warmth of the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. 
We could keep trying to put you in the moment, but to really understand everything you can do with a John Deere compact tractor, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. Welcome back. We've got, uh, let's see, 39 minutes left in the trading day. Let's get a check on some top stocks to watch as we head into the close. Seema Modi here with those. Hi, Seema. Hey, Mike, let's start with Williams-Sonoma at its highest level since August of last year after green equity investors revealed a 5% stake in the company. Green equity is an arm of an investment firm, Leonard Green, and the filing indicates that this is a passive investment. Shares you'll see are up over 12% at this hour. And Alcoa trading at its lowest level since March of 2021 after the aluminum company announced that its executive vice president would take over the CEO role from Roy Harvey, effective immediately. Immediately, Harvey will stay on as a strategic advisor, though the through the end of the year, we're seeing shares down about six and a half percent. Mike. Seema, thank you. The major averages are closing in on their first negative quarter of the year, with the Nasdaq down more than eight percent from its summer high. And our next guest says the setup for stocks could get choppier from here into year end. Let's bring in Elizabeth Burton of Goldman Sachs. Uh, Elizabeth, good to see you. Hey, Mike. Good to see you. Um, so we have, uh, you know, the, as we said, the Nasdaq down 8 percent. Global index is down at least uh, 6 or 7 percent. But also bonds are off, obviously, <laughs> we know, uh, to say the least. Where does that leave you in terms of figuring out where some opportunities have been created and where there's uh, a better risk reward? Well, what's interesting is we just completed our annual global um, private alternative investment survey at Goldman Sachs. It's available on our website. We found that investors are actually becoming more constructive on the markets, with at least 90 percent of them thinking that the markets are stabilizing or improving over the last year. Okay. Uh, What's also interesting is in that same report, they think markets such as private markets, private equity, can be expensive, while uh, and public equity expensive. But they're continuing to allocate on the private market side. They see public fixed income and public real estate as as somewhat cheaper. Does that also fit with how you're viewing the world or how you at the firm would suggest uh, you should position at this point? I think there are some differences. One interesting thing from the report is that investors are much more bearish on the eurozone. But some of the opportunities we see for diversifying your portfolio could be in the eurozone. For example, as you know, tech, healthcare can be cheaper there. There's also some uh, selective value plays there that we like, European banking sector, energy Mm -hmm. stocks, et cetera. So there are some things in the survey that that don't quite match with what we're seeing on the opportunity side. What's your take on just how asset markets in general are digesting this change on the yield front, whether it's going to last a long time or not? The cost of debt has been going up. Um, You're seeing hurdle rates uh, rise. Cash now pays you. Does that change the landscape in a fundamental way? For me personally, and I've been very repetitive on this, I think one of the things that investors should consider in this rising rate environment, and in particular, particular on the fixed income side, is the question that I keep getting from investors is when should I add duration back in? What should I do with fixed income? And if we're in an environment where inflation remains sticky and high and the correlation stays somewhat positive between bonds and equities, it doesn't necessarily mean that you shouldn't still shy away from fixed income. There are still positive benefits to adding fixed income into your portfolio, especially at these levels of interest rates. But it also means that you may need to look towards real assets for other sources of diversification, which we are seeing investors doing. We're seeing infrastructure, we're seeing real assets minus real estate becoming more interesting. 
Uh, so that would be things like commodities or infrastructure or things like that? Sure. So, yes, definitely in commodities. And I know one of my colleagues was on today talking about the opportunities in the copper market. Right. Institutional investors, that's a lot more challenging. You don't just go out and buy commodities typically. Uh, you can overweight cash to a certain extent. What's one interesting play that I've been hearing lately is real assets that are more digital in nature or have digital components. So like sports franchises are buying into the world of competitive sports. Yeah, uh, people have to range pretty far, I guess, to get non-correlated uh, assets of certain types. If we're back in a world, and, and I assume you think this is the case, where stocks and bonds are going to move together as they generally did in the 80s and 90s. Well, interestingly enough, based on history, you would actually expect that those correlations might come down over the next six months, but they could also stay higher. We don't we don't have total clarity what's going to mm -hmm. happen on the long end of, of, of the rate range, right? So there could be a period of time where that correlation stays sticky. What's interesting to me is that I thought fiscal year end ends for most institutions in July, we did not see a lot of asset allocation changes. And I thought that we would. So when you want to change your portfolio, you just go out and do it, right? You call an audible. If I'm an institution and I want to go out and change my portfolio, well, I might have to go find a new offensive coordinator and that could take six months and right. get my GM's buy-in and then they might get rid of me. <laughs> right. so it's just a different game. For sure. And just uh, finally, because you mentioned institutions like, let's say, pension funds having their fiscal year there. I've seen the case made that, in general, defined benefit pension funds may be overfunded right now, and therefore they might as well just sit there in cash and fixed income and, and safe income-producing assets as opposed to adding risk. I think it's going to be challenging for them to just sit there. I think, to your point, I think they might not be changing drastically their allocations. What, what I have seen happen is totally different from last year. I'm hearing more questions from institutions on can we hedge our portfolio. Reverse 12 months, they were saying, how can we diversify within asset classes? Now they're asking, what do you think about a total portfolio hedge to, to limit our exposure to a massive market drawdown? All right. Sounds pretty attractive if, uh, <laughs> if you can pull it off. Uh, Elizabeth, great to see you. Thanks so much. Great to see you, too. All right, up next, Amazon's $4 billion AI bet. Shares of the tech giant moving higher on the news. So how might this big move in the artificial intelligence battle impact Amazon's bottom line? We'll hear from a top analyst after the break. Closing bell, we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs and the small dogs who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Amazon set to invest up to $4 billion in AI company Anthropic. Deirdre Bosa here with those details. Hi, Deirdre. Hey, Mike. So this is really the way that big tech is sort of pioneering this shift in generative AI. Largely, it's partnering with some of these buzzier startups in the generative AI space like Anthropic. It's sort of similar to Microsoft and OpenAI. That was a $13 billion investment for an exclusive partnership. Here, Amazon is going to invest up to $4 billion. So it is smaller and it's not exclusive. And keep in mind, too, that Anthropic already has a partnership with and investment from Google. In this deal in particular, though, Amazon is going to be the primary cloud provider. So certainly a win for that cloud business, AWS, and a vote of confidence for Amazon's custom silicone, its custom AI chips, 
two of them, and the press release says that Anthropic is going to be training its models. I guess it is still an open question, however, how much it's going to be relying on NVIDIA GPUs, of course, still the dominant chip in AI applications and AI compute program. But Mike, as we were talking earlier, so much of this shift has to do with compute power, and that is very expensive. So the newer companies, the open AIs, the Anthropics of the world, they need to do these partnerships. And I don't know if you've seen this video um, that was published today by OpenAI, Mike, but the one that actually takes video and chat inputs, you can see how these applications are developing, but it's a bicycle. Someone wants to know how to move the seat, and it's pretty incredible. This is sort of the next iteration of ChatGPT and generative AI. It, it is remarkable, although I wonder from Amazon's perspective, Dave, what is the, the message? Is it effectively them telling their AWS clients, like, look, we're going to be right there with whatever you're going to need in this area. We're going to build our capacity. Don't worry about it. Uh, or is there something even on the consumer front that down the road is going to help uh, Amazon? That's a really interesting question because Amazon's strategy so far has in this generative AI shift has been, hey, we're here for the developers. We're not going to worry too much about consumer applications because there's going to be so many models eventually. There's going to be one for healthcare. There's going to be one for trading, et cetera, et cetera. So this deeper partnership with OpenAI, open, uh, sorry, with Anthrop, Anth, Anth, <laughs> now I can't say the word. Um, <laughs> with this deeper partnership basically says that they're making a bet on cloud. That is Claude. They're um, generative AI language model. So it is getting a little bit closer to the consumer side of things. But in the past, the company has said that there's not going to be one model to rule them all, but it wants to give access to all the developers, all their AWS customers, everything that they can. Anthropic, that's it. There I've it said is. it too many times today, Mike. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, Dean, thanks very, thanks very much. Uh, here to discuss further is the head of internet research at Evercore ISI, Mark Mahaney. Uh, Mark, uh, put this in some perspective uh, in terms of competitively where Amazon sat before with regard to the AI theme and, and what it might do for them. You know, this, I like the way Deirdre set it up. This is almost like uh, going back to Microsoft two years ago when they were making this internal decision, or it was two or three years ago, whether or not to invest in open AI. They were trying to develop gen AI technology competencies internally, and they realized that they needed to get outside of Microsoft in order to do that. And I think this is kind of an acknowledgement by Amazon that they can't do it all organically. So there's a little bit of a defensive element in here. The reason that it's probably a positive for the stock is that it, the company's at least now willing to make these kind of external investments. And look, uh, Anthropic is pretty well known uh, in the in the, um, in the the AI community and in the VC community too. It's cons been considered a high quality asset for some time. That's why it's got some of these other investors like Google in there. Um, so uh, Amazon's uh, making an investment, AWS is making an investment, its biggest ever in an asset that's considered high quality. This should inc increase the range of strategic and operational options for Amazon. That's why it's a positive. That being said, it sort of feels as if over the last few months, uh, the temperature has come down a little bit, and just in terms of the streets intensity of feeling like everybody has to have uh, some kind of, you know, killer app in this world. Mac Microsoft obviously down off its highs a fair bit. Uh, talk of chat GPT volumes maybe coming off the boil as well. Uh, so how much does it matter at this point beyond just saying, look, we're going to participate as things develop? Um, I, I don't know. In the near term, there's a debate, though, as to what's happening, whether we're seeing this kind of reacceleration in cloud industry revenues. Uh, Andy Jassy on the last uh, Amazon earnings calls pretty much suggested we would see it 
There have been some third-party data points that have been kind of skeptical of that. But the latest checks we've done as recently as this last Friday, it's here. The inflection is here. We've moved beyond the optimization cycle. And now we're starting to where uh, we're at a point now where new workloads, including AI workloads, are really starting to boost up um, cloud computing growth rates. So AWS should participate in that. So, so should Google Cloud and so should uh, Microsoft Azure and a few other small players too. So I think that's kind of the big point for investors. And I think this is just one kind of strategic overlay on that. Well, I particularly like AWS here is that I think the industry is finally starting to recover and you can get revenue growth acceleration at AWS. This is kind of just the cherry on top of this anthropic investment. If I could just um, turn you a little bit to Meta, because they are going to have this, you know, this event, maybe highlighting some of their uh, AI efforts, but also the stock. I mean, it's up this month and a down 5% uh, month for the NASDAQ 100. There's a lot of enthusiasm building among several fronts. Uh, how are you thinking about the stock after 150% gain this year? I'm not, uh, I'm not budging at all on it. It remains one of our top three picks. We go Uber, Amazon, and then uh, Meta. It trades at 16 times gap earnings. It's the cheapest high-quality tech asset out there, period. And our most recent channel checks, even as close as the recent as this morning, indicate that we're seeing strengthening, reacceleration in growth. And the way you really want to see it, which is uh, Meta, to their, to their credit, to their discredit, they got blindsided by the Apple privacy changes. To their credit, they invested aggressively in AI and they've used it to much better improve the return on ad spending for their marketers. That's why you've seen this acceleration in growth. You saw it from Q1 to Q2, you're gonna see it again in Q3 and then see it again in Q4. This is the best acceleration story you get in online advertising. So I like uh, uh, Medigear and there's also this odd point which they've actually done reasonably well with their Llama uh, uh, model. Now they don't have the enterprise presence, they don't have any enterprise presence like, uh, like obviously Microsoft and, and AWS and even Google does. But it's really impressive the technology that uh, that Meta's built kind of in-house. So I, give them, I don't think the market gives them any credit for that. I will, and I think the stock goes higher from here. With all those things, uh, I guess, driving the story, as well as, of course, the cost discipline, uh, you know, campaign that has been in effect for a little while right now, people very excited about Reels engagement, things like that. Do you actually need to have a view about its sort of consumer-directed AI capabilities, whatever they're going to be uh, announcing there in terms of, uh, you know, actually stuff that users see? Does it matter much for the story? I don't think it matters too much, I, but I think they've been using generative AI to kind of improve the personalization of your, your newsfeed. They're bringing you material, they're bringing me material, everybody else material that, be, that comes from beyond your, your social network. So they've really kind of emphasized media rather than social, and it's worked. We've got higher engagement at, uh, at Meta. But you said something, Mike, that's really important. I think for the real unlock still from here on the stock, I, here's the tagline. I think the year of efficiency needs to become the years of efficiency. And if they show to the market that they're willing to grow their operating expenses less than they grow revenue, i.e. the margins are going to expand, that they're going to be aggressive, but not super aggressive in that spend, you know, kind of low double digit growth in, in, uh, in, in their expense base. I think the market will reward them with the higher multiple. So that's what the market wants to hear. Just, you know, you got reward last year for making it the year of efficiency. Turn this into the years of efficiency. Your stock goes higher. All right, we'll look for that. Mark, appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Mark Mahaney. Up next, we're tracking the biggest movers as we head into the close. Seema Modi is back with that. Seema. Mike, we're taking a look at several stocks that could be impacted by the ongoing strikes, not to mention the labor market. We'll bring you those names in just a moment. 17 minutes till the closing bell, the S&P trying to hang on to about a quarter point, a quarter percent gain at this point. Let's get back to Seema Modi for a look at the key stocks to watch. Seema. 
Mike, let's take a look at CarMax higher as Wedbush upgrades the stock to outperform, citing an inflection in growth and improving profitability. Analysts say tight inventories and a prolonged strike from the UAW could support demand and pricing in the used car market. That all comes ahead of CarMax's earnings report on Thursday and something we'll be watching in the inflation report as well. Movie theater stocks are higher as the Writers Guild strikes a tentative agreement with the major studios. AMC CEO Adam Aaron said on X, formerly known as Twitter, that the world's movie theaters can celebrate the good news as attention turns to the Screen Actors Guild. Shares of AMC, Cinemark, IMAX, as you can see, all higher at this hour. AMC up 7%, Mike. All right. Yeah, well, that one is, uh, is known to be the real mover in the group, uh, Seema. Thanks so much. Last chance to weigh in on our question of the day. We asked, where do you see opportunity right now? Stocks, bonds, commodities? or cash. Head to at CNBC closing bell on X. We'll bring you those results after this break. Let's get the results of our question of the day. We asked, where do you see opportunity right now? Stocks, the clear winner, 44% cash coming in right behind. So people looking to buy this dip. Up next, biotech's big tumble, the XBI ETF hitting a new 52-week low today. We'll tell you what's behind that drop, what it might mean for the sector in the long term. That and much more when we take you inside the market zone. We are now in the closing bell market zone. J.P. Morgan Asset Management's Gabriela Santos is here to break down these crucial moments of the trading day and share her market playbook. Plus, Angelica Peebles on weakness in the biotech space and Courtney Reagan on why Jeffries is getting cautious on a pair of shoe retailers. Gabriella, uh, let's start with you with your market kind of diagnosis before the prognosis. What's been concerning the stock market, do you think, in the last little while? We obviously see 10-year Treasury yields at 455 or so. Uh, oil's up near $90 a barrel. And there's a little bit of an undercurrent of anxiety, I guess, that that's happening without necessarily an acceleration in the economy. So is that a correct well, worry? So a bit surprising to see the tenure up 10 basis points today. Nothing seems to have fundamentally changed. Yeah. Um, I think for the stock market, really since the end of July, the pop in yields has been concerning. You can see that in the bigger correction and the longer duration stocks as well as some of the year's winners. But I think in September specifically, you also started to see some growth fears emerge. That's behind uh, cyclicals uh, down 3.8% versus defensives hanging in there better, down only 1%. And I think it's just this nascent realization that the third quarter is probably the high watermark here for growth, that growth is set to slow from here. That is consistent with a soft landing. It's yeah. just that it is slower. It is not uh, blue skies ahead. And there are some building uh, laundry lists of, of concerns out there that could make for a soggy fourth quarter here. Uh, yeah. So even in a soft landing, you do land. So there is a deceleration underway. I mean, to what degree do you think the economy is going to be able to absorb it? I think that to me is the big question. If the Fed says, look, we think the economy is strong enough. We're in no hurry to cut. We need inflation to come into line. Um, the market seemed to hear they're not going to be sensitive to uh, a slowdown fears that really start to pick up. 
So I think the ability of the economy to have a soft landing very much depends on the labor market. This idea that you have a normalization in the pace uh, of job growth, but you don't have a collapse and that you can have a better uh, mix between the demand and the supply side just by lowering job openings at the same time that you have an increase in the labor force participation rate. So, so far, Mm -hmm. that's played out and so far that's consistent with a soft landing, but it all comes back to the jobs market. I think for the Fed, really the view that we disagree with is the path for inflation from here. We think we'll get back to 2% much faster than the Fed seems to think. And as a result, that leaves the door open for rate cuts, even in a soft landing scenario, in a way that's faster than what's being priced in, certainly across the curve. I would have voted in the survey you had previously. I would be hard pressed to choose between stocks and bonds, but I would have chosen bonds over cash Mm -hmm. in that scenario of being very close to peak rates. So you think that that would mean that there's value being built up in bonds by this pop in yields and real yields being higher, even if it's to some degree driven by supply, even if it's non-economic factors? I think we don't expect yields to fall anywhere near the kind of rates that prevailed after the financial crisis by any stretch of the imagination. We do think we're in a period where we can have positive real yields of between 100 and 150 basis points. It's just that we're over 200 at this point. It seems excessive, especially when I think markets fully appreciate the slowdown in growth, um, the the idea that it's high for longer, but not higher for longer, Mm -hmm. that our star might be higher, but the magnitude is not that far. So we see really a lot of opportunity in this extended sale for fixing. I was going to say, and that would also imply that the market maybe has overshot in its concerns uh, on those fronts. Absolutely. Yeah. And we would really look at four and a half percent in the tenure as very much a once every 16 years kind of opportunity to lock in yields and benefit from price appreciation. Interesting. And if that were to be uh, near the top, maybe stocks could do uh, okay with that as well. Did want to bring in uh, Angelica on this weakness uh, in biotech. Uh, it's been uh, pretty pronounced. Uh, a lot of times that's, a, that's sort of an indicator of investor risk appetites, or maybe there are broader concerns uh, just about whether it's you know the, the pace of approvals or, or something else going on there. Yeah, Mike, the closely watched SPDR S&P Biotech ETF is hitting a new 52-week low today, and it's now down about 9% this month. The NASDAQ Biotechnology Index is down about 4% this month as well. And that's a stark contrast from earlier this year when we heard such high hopes that there would be a turnaround. The sector has been hit hard over the past few years as investors look away from risk and look towards safer investments or they go into tech with that excitement around AI. You know, there's another piece of the uh, investment thesis usually when it comes to a lot of biotechs, which is, you know, a certain number of them are going to get bought by pharma companies down the road. Does that activity seem like, uh, you know, it's kind of dormant for now or is it still live? We've had a number of deals this year. There have been some big ones, the Pfizer and Seijin acquisition, as well as some smaller ones. But that doesn't seem to be changing investors' minds. And one report out today from Stiefel talking about this talk from the Fed of higher for longer is really turning people away from biotech because if there's any long-term investment, it's biotech. And so that's something that people just don't want to deal with. 
Yeah, that is for sure. It's uh, it's right there on uh, on its lows. That biotech uh, ETF, uh, Angelica. Thanks so much. Uh, and Courtney, we've been talking about uh, you know just general a uh, little bit of wear and tear on the consumer uh, <laughs> appetite for lots of things. But you're talking about Nike and other shoe uh, products. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously Nike's going to report a little bit later this week. And Jeffrey did a survey of consumers because we know what is also coming is the student loan payment resumption. And they said that I think it's 87 percent of people that have these student loans that are going to resume are really worried about how they're going to manage their monthly expenses. So then they said, okay, you're worried. What are you going to cut? Apparel and footwear were really high in the list, around half, more than half, said they were going to cut apparel, a little less than half footwear. And so that's where a footlocker comes into a worry as well as a Nike. And then, of course, you have problems at Nike anyways, because the wholesale channel is a little bit pressured with them buying less inventory. And then 64% of footlockers inventory right now is Nike. So if Nike is weak from other reasons, that's sort of a compounding problem. China continues to be a concern for Nike. It's been okay, not great. So a lot of things weighing on Nike, which then also has a flow through to Foot Locker. And then just generally, we're going to be watching footwear and apparel companies because it does seem to be an area that consumers are willing to cut back on if they need to when these student loan payments resume. A big part of the Nike narrative has always been, you know, people pay full price. They want the newest stuff. It's a performance culture. It's innovation. It's not just, oh, I need a pair of shoes. Let me go find one. Yeah, is, that, is that broken? Absolutely. I mean, I think some of that is starting to at least worry some of the analysts that are studying this, and they're worried about promotions coming in, lowering prices, lowering the average selling price for the shoes that are selling. So the shoes that are selling are more fitness and running, less of the basketball, and those are usually the higher prices. So I think that's a bit of the concern, too, for the margins of Nike. All right. We will see what the company uh, has to say later this week. Court, thank you very much. Thank you. All right. As we head into the close. We are just about at the highs of the day for the S&P 500, though. Very modest moves uh, all around. You see the Dow uh, is above 34,000. Uh, the S&P 500 up four tenths. NASDAQ has been outperforming. Amazon, in particular, has been an upside leader. And the Russell 2000 up one half of one percent. Uh, that is the most oversold part of the market. Of course, it is still down 11 percent from its all-time highs. The 10-year note up 4.54 percent right now. It keeps making new uh, decade-plus highs out there, although so far, stock market been able to handle it at this point. Uh, we also see the volatility index backing off under 17. Uh, so it still eludes uh, that trip above 20 that a lot of tactical investors wanted to see before feeling as if the market was due for a durable oversold bounce. As we go out here, NASDAQ up about half a percent. Looks like S&P 4338. That's going to do it for Cozy from a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 